is Our American Stories, and when our team here isn't working or eating, we're reading. And that's why we love having authors on this show. They can tell us something about, well, some things we thought we knew, but didn't. And today we're taking a fresh look at the recent revolutions in Egypt with Eric Traeger, the Esther K. Wagner Fellow at the Washington Institute, Washington Institute for Near East Policy and author of a terrific new book, Arab Fall, How the Muslim Brotherhood Won and Lost Egypt in 891 Days. And Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, Eric, you were there in 2011. What did you see on the ground, and how did it compare to what we in America on our television set saw? Because all we were hearing from the pundit class, and boy, do they get things wrong a lot, was, my goodness, what excitement, what joy. This is the new Arab Spring. Talk about that. Well, I, well, I think maybe it's helpful to just sort of tell my own personal story, because I think, I think it was both hopeful but also very scary for many people. So everyone knew that activists had called protests for January 25th, 2011. That's police day in Egypt today meant to honor the police for a major battle with the British in 1952. But activists had been using that day for a few years to protest police brutality. And with the recent uprising in Tunisia at that time, they wanted to have bigger protests that would really pressure the regime. Anyway, the evening before those protests, I was with an opposition party leader, and he said to me, and, and I asked him, you know, uh, will tomorrow's protests be real? He said, yes. I said, fine, where do I stand? He said, you know, stand uh, in front of the high court tomorrow at, uh, at about 1 p.m. So at roughly 1.20 p.m., 1.30 p.m., Protests started forming. Again, this is January 25th, 2011. I'm with my roommate. Uh, the protests at first were very contained by the police, but then a few hundred protesters streamed into this area, which is about a mile north of Tahrir Square in downtown Cairo. A few hundred protesters streamed into the area from the north, overwhelmed the police, and all of the protesters converged and started pushing southward towards Tahrir Square, which is that now famous traffic circle. And they overwhelmed the police. And being there, being an American, obviously seeing people march for freedom, march against a dictatorship, was very inspiring. It taps everything that, as Americans, we tend to believe about the world, which is that all people essentially want the same thing, namely freedom. And it was, frankly, a very uplifting experience. But the problem is it didn't end there. It wasn't, it wasn't just about that uplifting experience. So shortly after the protesters took Tahrir Square, a few of them started, uh, I should say a few hundred, started pressing up a side street uh, to, towards the prime minister's office, and they tried to occupy the prime minister's office. They were pushed back, uh, tried again, pushed back, got down to pray. And when they got up, things got very chaotic. People started throwing shoes and stones, and the police took out water cannons, uh, and, and it, was, it was becoming very chaotic very quickly. So I ducked off a side street, and I said to my roommate, look, you know, uh, this is not my uh, revolution. This is, this is your revolution. You do what you got to do, but I'm, I'm getting out of Dodge. And about a half hour later, my roommate called me from the back of a police vehicle. He was beaten. Uh, he was later released the following morning in the desert, had to hitchhike his way back to Cairo. The point is that this was not simply a glorious uprising of dictatorship, although it was partly that. It was also, for many Egyptians, a very scary confrontation with, this, with the state, a confrontation that 
bred chaos in many instances. And I think it's that second thing, it's the darkness of the uh, uprising and its aftermath that makes many Egyptians hesitant to go for another one. Well, and in the end, though folks didn't like Mubarak, the, the, the state, the country did function, Eric. It did function, and so a lot of folks had to worry, what next? What next? Talk about well, that's that. Exa- that's exactly right. So obviously Mubarak fell after, uh, after 18 days of protests. Um, the military responds to those protests after a few attempts by Mubarak supporters at ending them by, um, you know, by, by removing him from power. And what followed was a uh, transition in which the military ruled. Then there was elections that brought the Muslim Brotherhood to power. The Muslim Brotherhood ruled in a very uh, incompetent but also exclusivist manner. The president, Mohamed Morsi, a Brotherhood leader, constantly grabbed more power, alienating a broad cross-section of Egyptians while also alienating aspects of the state. And uh, the anger towards him and the Muslim Brotherhood coupled with this rejection of the Muslim Brotherhood from within the state institutions culminated on June 30th, 2013, when you had a second mass uprising, this time against the Muslim Brotherhood, and the military responded to that on July 3rd, 2013, by removing Morsi. Uh, so what you had after those kind of glorious images of Tahrir Square, which, as I'm saying, were partly glorious, but also partly very frightening for, for many Egyptians, was a very tumultuous period in which this country that had had very little politics in the previous 30 years had a tremendous amount of politics and tremendous amount of uncertainty in a a two-and-a-half-year period. And what you have in Egypt today, and I'm not saying this will last forever, I wouldn't bet that it would, but what you have in Egypt today is is a strong uh, antipathy and resistance for further upheaval. So what you have today in Egypt is a repressive police force, uh, a very bad economy, high youth unemployment. In other words, the factors that contributed to the 2011 Arab Spring uprising, I would say, are even worse today. And yet you haven't had an uprising in these past uh, three years since Morsi was removed because people are afraid that what could come after an uprising might only be worse. In other words, they've learned from the previous six years that uprisings do not necessarily make things better. It's so true. And by the way, we've spent some time on David McCulloch's book, 1776. And my goodness, when actual real revolutions happen, it's scary. People have to choose sides, and you don't know what's going to happen. And frankly, the folks of Egypt did learn what happened, and they were terrified. And when we come back, we're going to learn more about the Muslim Brotherhood. Who are they? What's their mission? We're talking to Eric Traeger. And he's the author of Arab Fall, How the Muslim Brotherhood Won and Lost Egypt in 891 Days. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. our American stories. We're talking with Eric Traeger, author of Arab Fall, How the Muslim Brotherhood Won and Lost Egypt 
in 891 days. And we love to get behind great books. We did it with Greg Ipps, terrific book, Foolproof. And he's the economics editor of the Wall Street Journal. We just did it with Mark Twain's Last Laugh, which you just got to get someone for Christmas who loves to laugh. And for anyone in your family who's interested in, well, all things the Middle East, national security, and just understanding this part of the world a little better, well, you've got to pick up Eric's book. And where we left off was the Muslim Brotherhood. And Eric, what is or who are the Muslim Brotherhood? What's their mission? And how does one become a member? So the Muslim Brotherhood is a is an insular organization. It's an Islamist organization that was founded in 1928 by a school teacher named Hassan al-Banna. And Hassan al-Banna was emerging in this period in which many Muslim thinkers were asking themselves the following question. What went wrong? Why did Islam fall behind the West? Why did Islam which in the early centuries of its revelation was on the cutting edge of science and technology, which controlled much of the known world. Why in the late 1800s, early 1900s, was Islam being overwhelmed culturally by the West, but also politically due to imperialism? And one of the answers that came about was that uh, Islam had fallen behind because Muslims had lost their way politically and had lost their way educationally. And to, to, to solve this problem, Muslims had to revive and uh, modernize the use of Sharia, in other words, Islamic legal concepts, uh, in their polities. So what Hassan al-Banna, the Muslim Brotherhood's founder, brought to this way of thinking, that in other words, to revive Islam vis-a-vis the West, you had to revive the Sharia is he built a specific type of organization. So um, the Muslim Brotherhood's goal is to first recruit individuals to its organization, then spread those individuals into society so that they preach the Brotherhood's message. Once that message gains substantial support, the Muslim Brotherhood would take over the state, maybe through elections, maybe through some other way. Ultimately, it was elections. And once this happened in many different Muslim states, all of these states would unify and form a global Islamic state, or what's typically known as a neo-caliphate. So what's the Brotherhood specifically trying to do, and this is actually very important, um, it interprets Islam as an all-encompassing concept meant to control every aspect of life. So what it wants to do is uh, interpret Islam and tell Muslims how to live, and then implement that ideology at the state uh, level. Here's the problem. The problem is that Sunni Islam is very diverse and actually non-hierarchical in nature. So the second an organization comes about and says, I know how to interpret the Sharia, this is how to interpret it, this interpretation should uh, control every aspect of your life, and by the way, if you don't agree well, you're not a good Muslim, it alienates people. And that's actually what happened with the Muslim Brotherhood, because it's so rigid, because it's so dictatorial, because it claims to have a monopoly on the understanding of Islam. Other Muslims very much resented this, and that's why in a, in a 90% Muslim-majority country like Egypt, you had a rebellion against the Muslim Brotherhood um, within one year of that organization coming to power. But back to the point about recruitment, you know, becoming a Muslim brother is not like becoming a Democrat or 
Republican. Um, you don't simply go to the uh, the DMV and check a box on a form. Right. It's a five to eight year process in which every single Muslim brother is vetted for his commitment to the cause and his commitment to the organization. And through that five to eight year process, every Muslim brother is promoted through successive ranks, almost like a military. And at every rank is tested, again, for his commitment to the cause and commitment to the organization. At the end of this process, every Muslim brother takes an oath to listen and obey Muslim Brotherhood leaders. So what the Muslim Brotherhood is trying to do through this process is make sure that there are no dissenters in the ranks and that every single Muslim brother sees himself as a foot soldier for the organization. And again, the whole point is so that that person is committed to spreading the Brotherhood's message in society so that the Brotherhood achieves state power and over time achieves global power for the purpose of resisting Western cultural and political influence. And this doesn't sound in some ways that much different than joining the mafia, Eric. It's certainly structured in a similar way. Um, You know, all these Muslim brothers are then uh, organized in cells that are known as families of roughly five to ten members. Um, And these families are responsible for the Brotherhood's local activities, could be handing out social services, could be preaching, could be recruitment, could be political campaigns, could be political rallies, could be trying to win power. And all of these cells uh, answer to a central chain, uh, a central leadership uh, that's based in Cairo, historically known as the guidance office. So the reason the Muslim Brotherhood was able to win power so quickly is that only the Brotherhood had the organization to mobilize around the country and in every community because those cells would all march to the uh, to the orders of that guidance office. Now, to your point about the mafia, I think that's a very useful analogy for understanding what's happened since Morsi's ouster. You know, when the FBI goes after the mafia, it doesn't go after the foot soldiers on the ground. It right. tends to go after the Don and the Kapo regimes. After Morsi was ousted in 2013, the new regime, backed by the military, similarly decapitated the Muslim Brotherhood, went after the top three layers of its leadership. So what you have now in Egypt is still probably a few hundred thousand Muslim brothers. But because that organization has been taken apart, because it's been decapitated, they can no longer function in a coherent manner. It's sort of like if you decapitate the the mafia, you'll still have criminals, but you won't have an organization that can control North Jersey. Uh, With the Brotherhood, you still have these Islamists running around, but they can no longer, at least not in their present state, control Egypt. You bet, because they're no longer an organized force. In the end, Eric. Also, they're not operating in the same vacuum. And they had that unique opportunity, from what you're telling us, that unique opportunity in 2011 that may not come around for a long time, Eric. Well, that's exactly right. Because the Muslim Brotherhood uh, failed so spectacularly in power, because it picked fights with so many of the state institutions, because by its nature it made uh, many Muslims in Egypt feel as though they were lesser. I mean, that's the, that's the whole uh, downside to claiming that you have the monopoly on proper Sharia interpretation, um, you know, because it alienated the public, in other words, and because its rule was so tumultuous, uh, many Egyptians are not eager to reopen Egypt's politics because they fear that the Brotherhood could come back. And I just want to emphasize uh, two things. First of all, it is pretty hard to measure right now 
Egyptian popular sentiment because, of course, it's a very repressive uh, situation. There are no reliable polls. But also, it's important to remember that, uh, you know, moods tend to change very quickly. So just because the Brotherhood is out now doesn't mean it'll be out indefinitely. And more importantly, remember that many Muslim brothers have fled abroad uh, since Morsi's ouster in July 2013. So you have Muslim brothers that have gone, especially to Turkey and Qatar, but also have gone to Europe, have come to America. Um, so, you know, that's why it's very important to be aware of how this organization works and why its ideology has been so alienating for many Muslims once they get to know it. There's a real mistake in not making the distinction between Islamism and Islam. And the Brotherhood's rapid fall from power really demonstrates that many Muslims are not Islamists and will, in fact, reject Islamist rule. Indeed, and I would, I would think that just like the mafia, and look, I had, a, I had a grandfather who was terrified of the mob. He had a pizzeria in Brooklyn, and he paid his due, and he didn't say anything bad, and he was almost forced to say they do some good here in the neighborhood because everyone was afraid of these characters. But my goodness, the ones who suffered the most at the hands of the mobsters were Italians. And they got shaken down at every storefront they owned, Eric. And, and yet they, they went along because they were afraid. Some feigned belief. Others were opportunists and joined, but they didn't really believe in the mafia. It was just a job. It, it's, it doesn't sound that much different, Eric. Well, I'll tell you the difference. The, the one important difference is the ideological component. Yeah. Um, it's obviously true that you know, every, every mafioso has to go through an, an induction process and has to swear the omerta. I mean, you know, yeah. anyone who's watched The Sopranos knows that. Yeah. Um, but with the, with the Muslim Brotherhood, it's not strictly about being a member of an organization. It's about subscribing to a specific set of beliefs. So what you'll find, especially when the Muslim Brotherhood is functioning effectively in a country is that Muslim brothers will effectively say the exact same thing about politics. So it's not strictly a unity of action. It's also a unity of ideology that made this, during a specific moment in time, like you said, a very potent organization. You bet. And we're talking with Eric Traeger, author of Arab Fall, How the Muslim Brotherhood Won and Lost Egypt in 891 Days. Go to Amazon.com and order it now. More after these messages with Eric. American Stories, and we're talking with Eric Traeger, author of Arab Fall, How the Muslim Brotherhood Won and Lost Egypt in 891 Days, and where we left off was talking about the mafia, similarities and differences, and during the break, Eric, you brought up a a profound difference between the two. Uh, Talk about ideology in the end, and also talk about the desire for wealth and not just power. Sure. So the the crux of being a Muslim brother is ideological. If you're a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, you really believe that this organization, in all its rigidity, in all of the uh, challenges that it takes to become a member, uh, that this is the way and the proper mechanism for promoting uh, Islamism, which again is this idea that the state should be based on Sharia and whose interpretation of the Sharia 
the Muslim Brotherhoods. Um, it's, it's deeply ideological, and many Muslim Brothers really equate their membership within the Muslim Brotherhood with Islam itself. So they see that by being Muslim Brothers, they're the best Muslims, everyone else is lesser. Again, it's that attitude that rubbed Egyptians uh, a very wrong way once the Muslim Brotherhood came to power and strongly contributed to the anger with the Brotherhood that fed the uprising against Morsi. Very different from the Mafia, where, you know, everything I've read, the primary motivation for joining the Mafia is financial and economic. Mafiosos, even at the lowest level of the, of the command chain, expect that they're going to become rich, that they might become a Don or a major leader one day, and, and you know, again, that they'll be rich. With the Muslim Brotherhood, it's a tremendous risk historically to be a member. This was an organization that was uh, pretty significantly repressed under Mubarak, even more brutally repressed right now. So it's hard to see a, uh, a financial reward. Now, it's also true, of course, that Muslim Brothers tend to take care of each other. So if you're a Muslim brother and you get sick, the Brotherhood will care for you, care for your family. So I'm not saying there are zero economic uh, incentives for being a Muslim brother, but it is primarily ideological. It is primarily this idea that through this organization, uh, Islam can rise again and over time fight the West. So how, for folks listening across the country here in the States, how is Muslim, the Muslim Brotherhood different than al-Qaeda, ISIS. Talk to the folks listening about the differences in these groups and also the similarities. Great. So let's just start where they're similar. All of these groups, at the end of the day, envision a caliphate. In other words, uh, a, a, a union of states that are governed by the Sharia uh, or some kind of international entity that under almost any definition, would be hostile towards the West. That's true of the Brotherhood. It's true of al-Qaeda. It's true of ISIS. Where they disagree is on two things. First of all, they disagree in terms of how they would interpret the Sharia for law and, therefore, what that caliphate might look like in practice. So a group like ISIS, a group like al-Qaeda, very strict interpretation, uh, very rigid very conservative, would probably be pretty brutal regimes, or in the case of ISIS, is a brutal regime. The Muslim Brotherhood's ultimate view on what it thinks its Islamic State or its global Islamic State would look like is very, very vague. And for me, and I outlined this in the book, that was one of the great surprises, that here you had this organization that had been around for over 80 years, uh, trying to win power, trying to win over the Egyptian public, and of course, publics in other countries. And yet, when it came to power in Egypt, it had absolutely no idea how to interpret the Sharia. It was ultimately a political organization, not an intellectual organization, not an organization that had any real policy vision, which, of course, contributed to its fall. But the second key difference between the Muslim Brotherhood and groups like ISIS and al-Qaeda is that process through which they want to establish the global Islamic State or neo-caliphate. So again, the Muslim Brotherhood wants to recruit individuals through that process I described. They then want to spread the individuals in the society so that they preach the Brotherhood's message. Over time, use that, guilt, that, that societal support to win political power. And when this happens in many different states, those states will unify and establish a caliphate. ISIS has a very different view, whereas the Muslim Brotherhood is grassroots up long term. ISIS instead says, here's your caliphate. We've established the caliphate. We're going to kill now 
conquer territory now, convince people later. ISIS, in other words, isn't wasting its time with recruiting individuals and spreading into society, then, you know, trying to gain state power and ultimately global power. It's trying to gain uh, regional power right now. Um, Al-Qaeda has a somewhat similar approach in that it has never called, it has never declared a caliphate. It's never said that it has a caliphate now, but it's working towards a caliphate now by fighting the West and other uh, regional competitors rather than focusing so much on, you know, winning over populations. At least that's typically been a strategy. Uh, there are some differences uh, in, in recent years. So, so that's really the key. Now, many people will listen to what I just said and say, oh, so, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood is moderate because it's trying to at least win over societal support. It's trying to go through the ballot box and only establish a caliphate once it's kind of created the base. And I think that that would be a flawed interpretation. It's unfortunately what many in Washington thought. They thought the Muslim Brotherhood was moderate because it was not like al-Qaeda or later ISIS. It's important to emphasize that these groups differ only in tactics and strategy. They don't differ in their end goal. But more to the point, you would never say that the KKK is moderate because it's not the Nazis. And by the way, David Duke runs for Senate. Right. Um, you would never say that. You would right. say, hey, the guy's a white supremacist. His ideology is radical. I don't care how he's trying to come to power. He's a radical. That's right. And that's true with the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood, yes, it has a different tactical approach. It doesn't lead with violence, although it's not opposed to violence. Um, but at the end of the day, it's still seeking, uh, you know, a type of Islamist supremacy that is obviously against the West, but most importantly, alienates other Muslims. And you said Islamist supremacy. Why do you think it is that so many here in the United States, leaders that is, call ISIS and call the Muslim Brotherhood and talk about al-Qaeda as if they're not Muslims, they're not real Muslims, and they're not following the Koran, that they they are somehow non-Muslims, and thus we don't need to call them Muslims, even though they themselves view themselves as Muslims. It's very confusing for folks here who think A is A, um, that folks in Washington, many of them will say A is actually B. Explain why in Washington folks think the way they think about these things. Well, I think in Washington you have this idea that in order to defeat a group like ISIS and al-Qaeda in particular, you need to distinguish them from Muslims more broadly uh, so that this way, A, you don't alienate Muslims and, and accuse them of being uh, sympathetic with or parts of organizations that they oppose, and B, that you might then win Muslim allies in this fight. My argument would just be that, A, uh, it's really not for non-Muslims say who is or, or isn't a Muslim. Right. Uh, certainly the members of these groups say they're Muslim. I'm not, I'm not in any position to contest uh, the way they see themselves. Right. But more importantly, it's superfluous. Uh, you know, as I've been saying, Islamism is not the same thing as Islam. That's something that many Muslims, and I would actually say most Muslims, probably understand off the bat. So by even raising this point and entangling ourselves within debates over who is or isn't a Muslim or what does or doesn't Islam preach, uh, we're really missing the boat. We should simply focus on these organizations, focus on their ideology, and have the confidence to know that the vast majority of Muslims reject these organizations and have actually been willing to participate with us in fighting them. Indeed, and I think it makes us look 
almost silly to not notice these things because if anybody notices them, it's actual Muslims. And in the end, they're often the the greatest victims uh, of these groups. When we come back, we're going to finish up with Eric Traeger, author of Arab Fall, How the Muslim Brotherhood Won and Lost Egypt in 891 Days. Go to Amazon.com. Order the book now. Again, it's Arab Fall, How the Muslim Brotherhood Won and Lost Egypt in 891 Days. And Eric was there for the start of the Egyptian Revolution and knows of what he speaks. More after these messages. Our American Stories, and for the hour we've been talking to Eric Traeger, author of Arab Fall, How the Muslim Brotherhood Won and Lost Egypt in 891 Days. And we're going to get into the policy implications in just one minute. But Eric, where do you see things going forward in Egypt, and how does all this, and why should all this matter to folks listening across the United States? Well, The way this is going to play out in Egypt, if you want to understand that, I think it's just really important to understand that what happened on July 3rd, 2013, when the military responded to mass protests by removing the first elected president, Muslim Brotherhood leader Mohamed Morsi, what happened on that day was a coup. And uh, those of your listeners who intend to launch a coup in their lifetime might want to take notes on what I'm going to say next, which is uh, when you launch a coup, you're going to have to kill whoever it is you're moved from power, because otherwise that group might return to power and kill you. And that's to say that Egypt today is in a kill-or-be-killed struggle between the military and the Muslim Brotherhood. Now, the military has largely won that fight. Like I said, it's decapitated the Muslim Brotherhood on at least three levels of the organization. Tens of thousands are in prison. A few thousand have escaped into exile. The organization is really not visible on the ground today. But when you're in a kill-or-be-killed struggle and you know that there's still probably a few hundred thousand Muslim brothers out there who want you dead, uh, when you're in that kind of struggle, you never ease up. You never feel secure. And that's part of the reason this has been the most repressive period in Egypt's contemporary history. The regime simply sees any oppositional activity, any kind of political reform, any kind of political opening, any kind of independent organization as a positive, as a possible uh, vehicle through which the Muslim Brotherhood might be able to agitate and return to power. So this is why, by the way, when Washington has spoken with Cairo about human rights abuses, about the, uh, the, the rising autocracy about the lack of political reform, it falls on deaf ears because from the Egyptian government standpoint, its repressiveness is necessary for its survival. And anyone criticizing that is essentially telling the government to go die. I'm not endorsing, by the way, the government's repressiveness. I think it's really sad and horrible. And frankly, I have uh, a few friends who have had to go into exile as a result, not Muslim brothers, but you know, people who are critics of the of the regime. I'm simply making a point about, you know, how likely we are to get uh, Egypt to reform anytime soon. I think, by the way, the new administration coming in, the Trump administration, 
understands this pretty well. Uh, you know, Donald Trump made it clear that he was not interested in promoting democracy, that he was interested in strategic relationships with the region. And I think that's why uh, Cairo has been one of the most uh, happy capitals uh, since, uh, since Trump won. Why should listeners care about this? Well, for a few reasons. First of all, the United States is still a global power. Uh, it still has you know, bases in the Persian Gulf that are necessary for fighting ISIS to keep us safe, as well as containing Iran, uh, important for protecting the stability of global oil supply. And if you want to maintain that, you're going to need a relationship with Egypt. Egypt is necessary for overflight rights, necessary for passage to the Suez Canal. It's a necessary counterterrorism partner, given its size. It's the most populous Arab country, as well as the fact that Many uh, Islamist movements have sprung from Egypt. So Egypt's going to be a necessary partner to do what we want to do in the Middle East. And that makes Egypt's political stability very important for, for U.S. interests. If Egypt is unstable, you could see massive refugee flows that would make Syria uh, look, look quite small by comparison. You could see a destabilization of America's position uh, in the Middle East, you could see a rupture of the peace treaty with Israel. I mean, there, there are many possible risks. And I think that's one reason why Americans have focused on Egypt. The other reason that we should put out there is, frankly, Americans are fascinated by Egypt. You know, Egypt is obviously in the Bible. Uh, it's in our movies. It's in our culture. Uh, you know, we go to museums as kids and see mummies. We learn about Egypt when we study ancient civilization. So it's really one of the few Arab countries that all Americans have heard of that really exists somewhere in the American imagination, and it's a place that people want to visit. It's a place that people think about. Uh, I think that's why there was this attention to Egypt in a way that there was not similar attention for Tunisia or Yemen or Bahrain or even Syria, countries that also had uprisings during the Arab Spring. Only Egypt was covered 24-7, all 18 days of the uprising, with major news networks sending their top people, Anderson Cooper, Lara Logan, etc., out to Cairo. Yeah, it's so true. By the way, that story of what Lara Logan experienced in Tahrir Square was just mortifying. Could you sum that one up in case folks hadn't heard it? Because it really was something. Yeah, what happened to, to Lara Logan is that um, once Mubarak's ouster was announced on February 11th, 2011, there were, um, you know, there were obviously celebrations in Tahrir Square. She was, she was, uh, she was covering that for for CBS, and uh, and she was very brutally uh, assaulted sexually. Um, and uh, and by the way, this is a this is a common uh, risk and uh, and uh, a really dark side of uh, of Egypt, frankly, that there are many sexual assault cases. Um, I think, you know, and I only have anecdotal evidence on this. It's, it's hard to know numbers. I think this has improved a bit in recent years, um, but it's frankly been an issue for as long as I've been, uh, I've been going to Egypt. That's why, frankly, I have a great deal of, uh, of respect for the women who, who tend to cover Egypt because uh, they end up putting up with, uh, with a lot um, and much more than, than men are asked to. I mean, she was pulled away from her camera crew and essentially passed around a mob for 30 or 40 minutes and brutalized and sodomized in just unspeakable ways by not one, not ten, but she calculates maybe hundreds of men. Uh, with, with people cheering it all on, Eric, people cheering it on. 
uh, absolutely uh, frightening prospect for any woman going into that space. Let's just it talk. It is, and I, I just just on that. I mean, you know, one of the things that female colleagues have mentioned to me is, you know, just how common uh, negative comments, uh, different types of assault, gropings are. I mean, it is for a woman. Uh, it can be a very challenging place to operate, and obviously, what Lara Logan experienced was uh, was the worst of it. You know, probably the worst case I ever heard. And to her credit, she gets right back into the hot zones. I mean, she is one courageous lady. I wanted to talk about one last thing, and it just has to do with the Middle East in general and our ability as we go down the road not putting boots on the ground, which I don't think anybody wants to do in a big way anytime soon. But how do we pick the good guys from the bad guys, Eric? How do we know who the moderates are? How do we know who to arm how do we know where to intervene in ways that are wise and not? This has got to be the trickiest foreign policy conundrum we've ever faced. Well, the short answer, and it's a really important question, is that we, we don't and we frequently can't. Um, the Muslim Brotherhood, it should be remembered, was founded in 1928. And at the time of Mubarak's overthrow in February 2011, it had a website. Its leaders were relatively accessible to anyone who visited Cairo. Uh, It put out information in English and Arabic, of course. It had social media pages. It it had books. I mean, it it had been well studied. Um, This was an organization, in other words, that our policymakers really should have known and understood. Instead, policymakers, and I should say not just in the Obama administration, but left and right, convinced themselves that this was a moderate organization because it wasn't al-Qaeda, because it had renounced the violence, completely failing to examine its ideology, examining the way it works, examining the extent to which it's frankly a cult and a totalitarian one at that. So my argument is, if you can't get an 80-plus-year-old organization right, an organization that has web pages and books and leaders who speak English, how are you going to figure out who the moderates are, from 160-plus militias in Syria, all of which emerged in the last five years, and which don't all have, you know, Facebook pages and and websites and uh, decades' worth of literature on them. If we can't pick uh, the moderates from the radicals when we're dealing with known entities, I just have no confidence in our government's ability to do it when we're dealing with unknown entities. And by the way, in Syria, Unlike in Egypt, where at least you could say the Muslim Brotherhood is a unified and not very fluid organization, uh, you know, these, these groups in Syria are very fluid. One day you could find someone in one group, the next day they're in a far more radical group. So, so we're not even dealing in Syria with fixed entities. It's very difficult to pick the moderates, and I think it's just a call for humility on the part of our policymakers uh, before we arm anybody, before we try to pick winners. Let's really look at what's under the hood. And let's hope humility isn't in short supply. And hopefully we've been humbled by some of the decisions policy-wise that we've made over the last decade and a half. We've been talking to Eric Traeger, author of The Arab Fall, How the Muslim Brotherhood Won and Lost Egypt in 891 Days. Just a final thought, Eric. One 30-second final thought to the folks on why they should pick up the book. Well, the book really traces uh, a, 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 an important period in Egyptian history, and I'd say world history, and the lesson of it is be careful what you wish for, that 
when you take a chance, when you try to overturn an existing system, it might not work out. It might leave things worse off, and it might make you worried and fearful of ever trying to pursue that kind of change again. And again, folks, that's Eric Traeger, author of Arab Fall, How the Muslim Brotherhood Won and Lost Egypt in 891 Days. Go to Amazon.com, order one, heck, order two. It makes a great gift and reads like a thriller. This is Our American Stories, and go to Our American Network for all that we do. American stories, and for the hour, or at least a part of it, the life of C.S. Lewis. And I want to do a brief reading. I rarely get personal and bring my own personal life into the show, but this is a story where sometimes you have to, because I've got some stories too, and this may have been the, the biggest one in my life. And so I share it with you, and the impact C.S. Lewis had on my life. I wrote this for the National View Letter to a Christian Nation. Any one of us who have come to Christ late in life know the factors that led us to him. The Spirit was tugging at me for a while. C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity started it. Like me, he was once an atheist, until he could be one no more. Quote, In 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God, wrote Lewis. Perhaps the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. A few committed people of faith did the rest for me, as I witnessed in them the power of the Holy Spirit. It was the power of their lives. The way they lived made them stand apart from other people I knew. In the fall of 2007, I became the most excited and reluctant convert in all of northern Mississippi. And I'm not alone. I would say that C.S. Lewis has done this for millions of people. He's sold 100 million-plus books. I think that's testimony. And on this day in history, in 1898, C.S. Lewis was born. You may know him best as the author of the Chronicles of Narnia. But as you'll see, he was so much more. Born in Ireland, young Lewis loved animals, stories, songs, and myths, laying a foundation for his adult life. Though raised in a religious church-going family, Lewis found the rituals uninspiring. He thought their church services were more a statement of politics than of faith, a weekly declaration that they were not Catholics. Seeing religion was a chore and swayed by Roman poet and philosopher Lucretius' argument that, quote, had God designed the world, it would not be a world so frail and faulty as we see. Lewis became an atheist. He would later describe his teenage self as being angry with God for not existing. In her turmoil notwithstanding, young Lewis excelled in school, earning a scholarship at Oxford. Shortly after arriving at the university in 1917 for the summer term, 
Lewis joined the Officer Training Corps and was soon commissioned as a second lieutenant in the 3rd Battalion of the Somerset Light Infantry. He arrived at the front lines in France's Somme Valley on his 19th birthday. As if he needed more reasons to not believe in God, Lewis was introduced to trench warfare. How could there be a God in a world such as this? In April of 1918, a friendly artillery shell landed short, killing two of Lewis's friends and sending him to the rear. Depressed, despondent, Lewis healed his physical wounds and returned to Oxford. In four years of study, Lewis earned three first-class degrees from Oxford in Greek and Latin literature, philosophy and ancient history, and English. Then is now, finding a job with any or all of those degrees is harder than one might like, so Lewis became a teaching fellow at Oxford's Magdalen College. All through this, Lewis was making and deepening friendships that would deeply affect the rest of his life. At Oxford, Lewis joined a literary discussion group called The Inklings, whose members included J.R.R. Tolkien and Hugo Dyson. Not bad. The group met at a pub called The Eagle and Child. They called it The Bird and Baby, and worked to improve each other's works in progress. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings was first shared at these pub meetings. Wow. Be a fly on the wall there, huh? So were some of Lewis's stories. Inspired by his reading and friendships with Tolkien, Dyson, and others, Lewis came to doubt his atheism. First, he came to believe in a universal spirit, becoming a theist, if you will. Lewis was further moved by the words of G.K. Chesterton and others, and deep conversations with friends. Lewis would later liken his conversion to Christianity as being hunted down by God, or even being defeated by God in a game of chess. In late September 1931, C.S. Lewis took a nighttime stroll with J.R.R. Tolkien and Hugo Dyson. The trio started talking about myths, the very things that Lewis so loved as a child. Tolkien convinced Lewis that such myths were God's way of preparing us for the Christian story. In the same walk that would last until morning, Dyson told Lewis about how belief in Christ liberated believers from their sins so they could become better people. Three days after that odd all-nighter, Lewis and a friend rode motorcycles to visit the zoo. Lewis would later recall, quote, When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and when we reached the zoo, I did. Checkmate. Fast forward to the start of World War II. Lewis tried to re-enter military service to instruct cadets, but the government wanted him to write propaganda. Lewis declined, but he began speaking on British Broadcasting Corporation radio. He's perhaps best known for a series of religious talks broadcast over the BBC as London was under siege by Nazi bombers. Royal Air Force Chief Marshal Sir Donald Hardman later wrote of this trying time and of Lewis, quote, It was a time of strain and difficulty for all of us. The war, the whole of life, everything tended to seem pointless. We needed, many of us, a key to the meaning of the universe. Lewis provided just that. Better still, he gave us back our old traditional Christian faith so that we could accept it with new confidence, with something like certainty. Without ever being political, military, or jingoistic, I am sure that he did, perhaps without meaning to, a great deal for what is called the war effort. 
The transcripts of these talks would turn into perhaps Lewis's best-known non-fiction book, Mere Christianity. Sadly, most of the audio had been lost, but we have a little, and we'll play it for you when we come back. This consequential man, by the way, as relevant as ever, and a person that literally and figuratively changed my life forever. Our American Stories, The Life of C.S. Lewis, continues after these messages. our American stories. This day in history, C.S. Lewis was born. By the way, he impacted dramatically Chuck Colson's life too. We covered that in his life story on this day in history for Colson. Now let's take a listen to some of the last surviving audio of C.S. Lewis's broadcast talks on the BBC. This from Beyond Personality, The New Man. Here Lewis begins by explaining the changes that Christians undergo. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self, and that this process goes on very far inside. One's most private wishes, one's point of view, are the things that have to be changed. That's why unbelievers complain that Christianity is a very selfish religion. Isn't it very selfish, even morbid, they say, to be always bothering about the inside of your own soul, instead of thinking of humanity? Now, what would an NCO say to a soldier who had a dirty rifle, and when told to clean it, replied, But, Sergeant, isn't it very selfish, even morbid, to be always bothering about the inside of your own rifle? instead of thinking of the United Nations. Well, we needn't bother about what the NCO would actually say. You see the point? The man's not going to be much use to the United Nations if his rifle isn't fit to shoot with. In the same way, people who are still acting from their old natural selves won't do much real permanent good to other people. Let me explain that. History isn't just a story of bad people doing bad things. It's quite as much a story of people trying to do good things. But somehow something goes wrong. Take the common expression, cold as charity. How do we come to say that? From experience. We've learnt how unsympathetic, patronising and conceited charitable people often are. And yet, hundreds and thousands of them started out really anxious to do good. And when they'd done it, somehow it just wasn't as good as it ought to have been. The old story, 
what you are comes out in what you do. A crab apple tree can't produce eating apples. As long as the old self is there, its taint will be over all we do. We try to be religious and become Pharisees. We try to be kind and become patronizing. Social service ends in red tape and officialdom. Unselfishness becomes a form of showing off. I don't mean, of course, that we're to stop trying to be good. We've got to do the best we can. If the soldier's fool enough to go into battle with a dirty rifle, he mustn't run away. But I do mean that the real cure lies far deeper. Out of ourselves and into Christ, we must go. And that's the magic of C.S. Lewis. He was a layman, speaking to layman in layman's terms. He continues by diving into a discussion of change, or evolution, if you will. The change won't, for most of us, happen suddenly. And I must admit that for most Christians, it'll only be beginning to the very end of our present lives. But there are some in whom it goes further, even before death, far enough for you to see it. Their very faces and voices are different. When you meet them, you know you're up against something which, so to speak, begins where you leave off. Something stronger, quieter, happier, more alive than ordinary humanity. Now, that's just where Christianity, as I think, has the real answer to a question a lot of modern people are asking. Everyone's heard of evolution, how men evolve from lower types of life. And people often ask, what's the next step? When is the thing beyond man going to appear? Some imaginative writers even try to picture what the next step will be like but they usually end in nonsense about men with six arms or wings or something of that kind. But the Christians think those people are on the wrong tack. The next step has already appeared. The next step is from being mere creatures to being sons of God. The new kind of man appeared in Christ. And other new men little Christ, are already to be found, dotted here and there about the earth. We Christians don't call it evolution, because we believe it isn't something coming up out of blind nature, but something coming down from the world of light and power and knowledge beyond all nature. But if you like to call it evolution, do. The next step is here. You can become one of the new men in Christ, if you like. Or, if you prefer, you can refuse the step and sink back. Now, if we take the step, it involves losing what we now call ourselves. That doesn't mean that all the people who accept Christ are going to be exactly like one another. I know it sounds as if it did. If there's one Christ, and he's to be in us all, actually replacing our personalities with his own, what difference will there be between us? And that's a very fair question that Lewis poses, and he tackles it head-on by using everyday experiences to explain something very abstract. 
Now, here I've got a rather difficult thing to say. On the one hand, it isn't true that we shall lose our personal differences by letting Christ take us over. On the other hand, I don't think Christ can take us over as long as we're bothering about what will happen to our personality. Can I take the first point first? If a person didn't know about salt, wouldn't he think that anything with such a strong taste would kill the taste of all the other things in any dish you put it into? We know that as a matter of fact, it brings out their real taste. Well, it's rather like that with Christ. When you've completely given up yourself to his personality, you will then, for the first time in your life, be developing into a real person. He made the whole world. He invented, as an author invents characters in a book, all the different men that you and I were intended to be. Our real selves are, so to speak, all waiting for us in him. What I call myself now is hardly a person at all. It's mainly a meeting place for various natural forces, desires and fears, etc., some of which come from my ancestors and some from my education, some perhaps from devils. The self you were really intended to be is something that lives not from nature, but from God. At the beginning of these talks, I said there were personalities in God. Well, I go further now. There are no real personalities anywhere else. I mean, no full, complete personalities. It's only when you allow yourself to be drawn into his life that you turn into a true person. But, on the other hand, it's just no good at all going to Christ for the sake of developing a fuller personality. As long as that's what you're bothering about, you haven't begun. Because the very first step towards getting a real self is to forget about the self. It will come only if you're looking for something else. That holds, you know, even for earthly matters. Even in literature or art, no man who cares about originality will ever be original. It's the man who's only thinking about doing a good job or telling the truth who becomes really original and doesn't notice it. Even in social life, you'll never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking what sort of impression you make. And that's C.S. Lewis. This day in history, he was born in 1898. And as always, our This Days in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu and watch their remarkable series and class and seminar on C.S. Lewis. Again, this is Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories. And today we are joined by a guest who reacted to a tragedy by starting a foundation to help save other people's lives. And we love to talk about stories of faith, of hope, of redemption uh, here on Our American Stories. It's not not the usual fare. Uh, we like to cover stories that make you feel good about life. Uh, there's enough to bring you down. And Todd Crawford created the Lisa Call the Gracie Foundation a little over a year ago, and it is now the leader in raising critical awareness and education to help diagnose and treat brain aneurysms. Thanks so much for joining us, Todd. My pleasure. Todd, tell us how this all got started. Tell us about, well, tell us about Lisa to start. Well, I mean, she was a very well-known a television journalist for ABC News uh, was in uh, television industry for the last you know 20 15 20 years um, and she was an absolutely amazing uh, wife and incredible you know mother to our two to our two sons and uh, she was the love of my life and uh, you know is now the inspiration um, for the foundation and you know what we're going to be you know what we're doing going going forward to impact the the lives of others so she uh you know one day you know last march 19th of last year of 2015 she was reporting on assignment for abc news and um dropped dead from a ruptured brain aneurysm unbelievable and this is not something you could have ever imagined would strike your wife she was in all other ways, uh, a picture of health, correct? Yeah, um, she was a picture of health and nothing more than a common, you know, head cold. Uh, worked out, you know, four or five days a week. Um, you know, very healthy and, and brain aneurysms were not something that, you know, were even on our radar screen because, you know, we just knew nothing about them. There's no one out there that has ever addressed consumers to educate uh, the public about brain aneurysms or the classic warning signs, which was kind of the impetus for launching the foundation after Lisa passed away. And as a as a husband and a father of two, this, you know, obviously you had to figure out how to deal with your grief. But what was that like? You know, those that week, that month, uh, and the kids. How how are they doing now? And how did how did they take this when it first happened, Todd? You know, it, it's tough. Um, you know, because it's a it's a it's a very big shock. She was the matriarch of our family and kind of the the center of the family unit, and as most women are. And um, you know, it's very difficult. Even you know, today, uh, nineteen twenty months later, uh, you know, you wake up most mornings, and it's very difficult to even climb out of bed and and try to find a way to face the. Uh, the day ahead of you, but you have to push on and you have to force yourself to, to find strength and, you know, to set an example for the boys and um, to somehow find a way to turn our personal tragedy into a positive for others around the world. And um, and it's not easy. Um, the loss is enormous and you, you feel the void and the pain is there every single day, uh, especially um, acute this this time of year and um, you know but uh, so all you have are the memories to fall back on you bet and your and your boys how old are they 
and uh, tell us a little bit more about them before we dig into the this great response of yours and how to deal with this grief. So the boy is just uh, a few months ago, just turned 12 and, and 16. When that happened, they were uh, 10 and 14 years old. And, um, you know, they're just amazing boys. They have an inner strength that I think that they that they got from Lisa. And, um, you know, they've been able to draw, you know, from we're a family who's uh, our faith is at the center of our lives and always has been. And I think we've you know, when this happened, we, we turned to our faith for additional strength and turned to God and and asked Him to comfort us and give us strength and, and guidance as we move forward. And so uh, they're very active in sports, and they're, you know, both very big hockey players, which, which Lisa introduced them to the sport. And, um, you know, they have many, many, many qualities, uh, great, adorable qualities of hers, thank goodness. And... Um, you know, for that, I'm for that. I'm very thankful. And, you know, I think it's always difficult for people of faith when 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 bad things happen to good people. I think these become those moments where you can either lose your faith or gain in your faith. We, we've just been spending some time on the speeches of C.S. Lewis to the British people during wartime, because my goodness, what kind of a God allows Europe to be overrun by an evil war machine? And how did this right. how did this work with your boys' boys' faith in particular? As folks are listening to this and have suffered from some kind of tragedy or another, uh, talk about that if you could, Todd. You know, I th- I think that you know at first they, as I think is a natural reaction, they que- you know started to question the existence of God and how could a uh, all loving you know powerful God allow something like this to happen? And I think that's the natural first you know, instinct and reaction. But um, as the as the weeks and months went on, and as I talked to the boys, and as we continued to go to ch- and sit in church week in and week out, I think you, you know, you take a deep breath and you look back and, you know, throughout history of the world, there's always been, you know, death and, and war and sickness. And so this isn't something that you know, was isolated to us. Um, you know, it's, it's, I think a lot of it is just time and circumstance. Um, and, um, you know, we, we, we believe that, you know, we decided that we had to buckle down and, and, you know, at, at the end of the day, the meaning of life, what you realize is that life here on earth is about loving one another, loving everyone, helping others in need, and trying to make a positive difference in the world in the short time that you are here. And, and so that's what we have att- attempted to do. And that's a beautiful way to segue into the next segment. When we come back, we'll be talking to Todd Crawford and how he turned tragedy and family tragedy into, well, something pretty remarkable, and that is the, the Lisa Colagrossi Foundation. And Todd, just uh, we have about a minute and a half to break. Um, just when did the idea dawn on you that, heck, you know, this aneurysm thing, maybe it's bigger than my wife. Uh, I, I haven't read a lot about it. I didn't know a lot about it. I mean, who knows about aneurysms until, or half the things that happened to us, Todd, until they happened to us. So it was our immediately after her passing in the in the weeks after she passed, I, I started digging in and, and researching aneurysms because, as I said, we knew nothing about them. And the more that, you know, I, I learned 
um, the more that you know, I discovered that there was no national voice for brain aneurysms in the U.S. or the rest of the world. And, um, you know, this really is a national health crisis that affects as many as 15 million Americans. Um, and, and so we decided that, you know, we were going to become that voice with the resources and contacts that, you know, we had because of who Lisa was um, and, you know, how broadly her, the passing, you know, made news headlines around the world, we thought that we would attempt to, to leverage that to the best of our ability and become that national voice for brain aneurysms around the world. Well, and that is a remarkable number, up to 15 million people stricken by this, by this menace. Again, we're talking about aneurysms. When we come back, we're going to talk with Todd Crawford about the Lisa Colagrossi Foundation. And again, here on Our American Stories, these are the kind of stories we tell daily. Uh, stories of redemption, how people rise from tragedy and actually do beautiful things in the wake of tragedy. This is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. And for more information, about this foundation, go to tlcfound.org. That's tlcfound.org. This is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Todd Crawford, who, in honor of his bride's death suddenly to an aneurysm, started the Lisa Colagrossi Foundation. And again, go to tlcfound.org to learn more and to give. And Todd, during the break, we were talking a bit about aneurysms. Before we advance this conversation, what is an aneurysm exactly? So an aneurysm is a weakening of one of the walls of a uh, blood vessel in the brain that balloons outward over time as a result of the constant blood flow and pressure against that weakening wall. So if you can imagine a car tire or bicycle tire that has a big bulge in it uh, because of a weakening wall, that's the exact same thing um, to um, in what a what a a brain aneurysm looks like in the brain. And can scans or MRIs capture this early? Is there are there early detection uh, warning yeah, signals? So and the, you know that yeah, that's the key is is early diagnosis and detection. Um, the two best ways to detect a a brain aneurysm are angiogram and uh, MRI or MRA um, that involves contrast. And the MRI picks that up. And then the question becomes, how do we get more people to understand the symptoms and then get that MRI and, and thus prevent the, the aneurysm? One other question I had before we advance this is something we covered over the break, which is I'm just shocked that at 15 million folks a year suffering from brain aneurysm, that there isn't already a group representing this space. Uh, we have the Susie Komen Foundation. We have so many wonderful organizations 
hitting different different problems and and diseases. Why not? Why not aneurysms, Todd? Why not? Well, I I, I think it's a it's a, it's a it's a multiple uh, part answer. But you know, one of the big problems is that the medical community um, lumps brain aneurysms in with the stroke family. So there are two different kinds of stroke. There's ischemic stroke, which is your traditional stroke that most everybody thinks of. And then there's what's called hemorrhagic stroke, and brain aneurysms fall into the hemorrhagic stroke bucket. Um, So I think that that is part of the problem because the ischemic stroke numbers are so much larger, being one of the biggest, you know, health um, conditions in the country. Um, And secondly, you know, there there has been no parent organization in the U.S. um, solely dedicated to you know, generating awareness and educating, speaking to the public, the general public about brain aneurysms. And so I'm very confident that over the next few years, the Lisa Colagrassi Foundation will become that national voice, will become a household name synonymous with brain aneurysms, much like Susan G. Komen has become, you know, for breast cancer over the last 20 years. And so that's what our, you know, that's one of our top priorities is to generate and create that awareness and education among the public about brain aneurysms and the classic warning signs. And let's talk about some of those, but I wanted to hit the listeners with some numbers. An estimated 40 to 50,000 ruptures occur each year. And of those, Todd, 50% never make it to a hospital. And the other 50% die within several months. This is, those are some rough, those are some grim numbers. Well, it's actually, just to correct you, so of, of the ruptures, 50%, almost 50% instantly die. Of the survivors, of the other 50%, a third of them will die within two to three months from complications of the rupture. The second third will survive, but with major permanent neurological deficits for the remainder of their life. And then about that final third, they will go on to resume a somewhat uh, normal quality of life prior to uh, the rupture occurred. So only a third. So it really is. A, it's a national health crisis that affects up to, up to 5% of the U.S. population, which is the equivalent of 15 million Americans, um, you know, that is highly fatal if a rupture occurs and you know nobody has ever addressed the general public to educate them about brain aneurysms or the classic warning signs or what to do if they think they're experiencing the classic warning signs and again we're talking to todd crawford and he helped put together and start the lisa Calagrassi foundation Uh, that was his beloved bride who died of an aneurysm an abc broadcaster well known to the general public but this disease was not, and this has become Todd's mission and a way of channeling grief and loss into something very productive for other families. Let's talk about, Todd, the sample signs and symptoms of this disease. So there are you know, quite a few warning signs that are similar to the stroke family. Um, but there are probably four or five that are very unique brain aneurysms, the first being worst headache of your life. So if somebody experiences 
uh, a headache that is not your typical headache. It's very unusual. It's not like anything that you've ever experienced before, not even a migraine. It feels like your head is going to explode. It is the, and everybody describes it the exact same way. Worst headache of life, W-H-O-L. Uh, that's probably the biggest. Uh, the others include uh, sensitivity to light, a very sharp uh, localized pain above or behind one of your eyes, and uh, stiffness of neck. So those are are probably the uh, the the four or five that really are unique to brain aneurysms that people should be aware of. But that W H O L, that worst headache of your life, that's the that's the sure sign that you got to be running to get an MRI at a minimum, Todd. Yeah, and a, and a lot of people describe it as they almost feel it's like a thunderclap, um, like a like a lightning bolt has struck them. With all of those, with the sensitivity to light, the 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 sharp pain above or behind your eye, the stiffness of neck. Uh, the common thread to all of those is that they're sudden onset. They come on out of nowhere. It's not like they come on gradually over time. It is a sudden onset of those symptoms that people need to really recognize them and be aware. And if you feel that, you know, if you experience one of those symptoms, you need to seek immediate medical attention. And you can uh, uh, underemphasize the immediate part of that, Todd. Uh, what kind of an impact? Let's talk about the impact the foundation has already made, Todd. Sure. Well, we've been around, um, you know, a little over a year now, uh, about 14 months. Um, we've achieved a number of industry firsts in, in the in the in, over that time. Uh, we've launched the. Uh, the industry's first and only online omnibus study uh, to understand the lack of awareness and education among the general public across the country. Um, we've, um, you know, we've done a number. We've launched a national awareness campaign. We're in the process of producing a public service announcement um, currently with Whoopi Goldberg, who knew my wife and paid tribute to Lisa on The View the day after Lisa passed, and just one month later, Whoopi's own brother, Clyde, died of a ruptured brain aneurysm as well. So Whoopi is producing the industry's first-ever public service announcement for us, which we um, intend to launch nationally sometime next year. Um, and, you know, the reason for everything that we do is to is to get to the general public and educate them and, you know, get them to a point where they can self-diagnose and will seek immediate medical attention um, and can be treated before a rupture occurs. That's the key. And so we are, you know, very humbled and thankful that we have been credited with saving the lives of a number of people from around the world just in the last 14 months as a result of one of our awareness or education initiatives. You may have heard an interview like the one that we're doing now or seen us on Fox News talking about brain aneurysms, and they were experiencing one of those classic warning signs that we described, and they went and sought uh, medical attention like we've encouraged them to do, and they were diagnosed and treated 
uh, successfully. Well, this is great news, and a, a life saved, a single life saved is a remarkable thing, but this could amount to many, many more, hundreds if not thousands, once people are properly aware of the symptoms. And thanks, Todd, for all that you do. And we wanted to give a shout-out to the Fort Myers Walk, sponsored by TLCF and Gulf Harbor Properties. It's the first annual Gulf Harbor Properties fundraising walk. Folks can go to the website, I assume, Todd, and find that out at tlcfound.org. And uh, thanks for all you do, Todd, uh, for raising awareness and condolences. I know it's been a year, but I know how long it takes to get through this process. And uh, to you and your family, we still offer our prayers. And thanks for doing what you're doing and, again, turning tragedy into something more akin to hope. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Todd Crawford, the Lisa Cola Gracie Foundation. Again, that's tlcfound.org. More after these messages. <laughs> 